All right. So I know for some of you, it's probably been a long time. Some of you have moved maybe a little bit more recently. But when you, when you set up your house, how did you set up things in your house when you moved into your house? Slowly. Slowly. Sometimes. I know ours was an adventure. When we moved here, the house wasn't quite ready. So everything went into, I had a 40, still have a 40-foot storage container. And everything fit in the storage container. And so about two weeks after we got here, we had to unload everything out of the storage container and put it in the house. But one at a time, right? Did you, I mean, what did you think about where stuff went? Okay, but makes sense in what way? Order, so it's convenient, right? I mean, hopefully all your cooking pots and pans, you know, aren't at the opposite end of the house or, you know, if you think about that when you set your house up, right? So there's, there's a certain way to do things when you think about it and there's an order and a way that makes sense and, in, and it achieves certain things, right? And so today we're going to talk about the tabernacle, the place of meeting, and, and how God designed that. And he had a very specific way of how he set things up because he wanted worship to take place in a certain way. And there were certain rules to follow, right? Like, you know, is, is your oven a great place to store lots of things? No. How many of you heard of people that went on vacation that there's... Stories you hear and somebody didn't want, you know, his ammunition stolen. He hides it in the oven and the wife comes home and turns it right. I mean, uh, there's all those things that go on where there are smart ways and not smart ways, right? So God has certain things he wants set up when, when he is giving the people. Because remember, we talked, we've talked about the Ten Commandments and then how, you know, last week was the golden calf and how fast the, the people strayed from God's word. And, and so God wants to set this up and as I studied this lesson one of the things I thought about is um, do you think God makes things illogical or do you think he makes things that are pretty easy for us to follow how, how simple is salvation very simple right and what God wants is it easy no it's right so it's almost like God says I want you to climb this mountain and you can see the mountain and you know you're supposed to go to the top of the mountain that climb can be very hard, right? And so it's not, I don't, I don't want to say God makes it easy, because it's not easy. It, it's, it's hard, and we make choices every day as believers to follow God and, and, to, and to obey his word or not, right? So it's not easy, but it's really pretty simple, right? And so God's laying this out, and it's laid out more or less according to the rules and things that he has set up for how he wants worship to function, how he wants his house to be, right? Because what... What is the tabernacle? What does that mean? It's, it's the meeting place. It's, and it's where God is going to come to dwell, right? And, and originally in the Garden of Eden, right, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, right? They were with God and they talked with God and they spent time with him, right? But then sin and death entered the world and there's that separation, right? They, they sinned, they broke God's word. And, and there was punishment for that. There's consequences, which is separation from God, right? And so now things have changed. Well, God is trying to set up, and, and we'll talk about this as we go through the lesson. He's, he's setting up and letting them see how things will be in the future. Because ultimately, as believers, ultimately, where will we be? With God in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven. And we will be... We will at that time be in his presence and we will live with him and we'll talk with him just like it was way back in the Garden of Eden when we finally get to 
the very end time, it will be the same. But there's this whole long journey and process that's going to take place in between. So God is laying things out to help us understand what it is we need to do and where it is that we're going so we have that encouragement. And so we're going to be in Exodus 40 today, and we're going to talk about the tabernacle and the meeting place because God wants to come and and be in the presence of the people again, and that's what God wants to do. So I'm going to start reading. We're in Exodus 40. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, You shall place the ark of the testimony there, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it. You shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and the altar shall be the most holy. You shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. And so here, God is telling the people what he wants them to do. So we're about a year into them being freed from slavery. That's about the timeline we're looking at here when this is taking place. So when this started, when the book of Exodus started, the Hebrews had been enslaved for 400 years, and God had had told them, that he would come and rescue them, and he hears their plight, and we've talked about Moses. And so God does that, right? He hears the people and what what is happening with them, and he frees them. And he goes through that whole process where he takes his people and he takes them out of slavery, and through miracles and some amazing things, he helps them escape. He destroys the Egyptian army. He takes care of them and supplies their needs in the desert. And he takes them to Mount Sinai, and there they, they learn to worship God on Mount Sinai. And he gives them their rules he wants them to live by. Well, part of that rule is, is worshiping God, right? Part of those things he wants them to do. Remember, he set the seventh day, the Sabbath, as holy. He set that aside, right? And the first four commandments are how we deal with God, and the, the, the second or the last six are how we deal with one another. But that's where we're at with this, is that God rescued his people and then he's providing for them. And now through the tabernacle, he's providing them the place and the structure for them to worship him, right? So he's given them this, these rules. Um, and, and as you go through, if you were to go back and read all of the texts that we haven't had the chance to go through the gospel project, in Exodus, God tells Moses all the rules and all the things that the priests are supposed to do and all the sacrifices and those things. And we're going to go through more of the books, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and these other books that help explain the law more, right? But God gives them the law to live by. And and he wants them to follow the law. Part of that law is the worship. And so he's getting this set up. So how does, what is the first thing that God talks about setting up in this meeting place. 
the, the tabernacle, right? So they're going to set it up. But it, when he first talks about it, he says, they, they, shall, they shall set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and then they place the ark of the testimony there, and then they screen the ark with the veil. So what, what is the ark that they're talking about? It's called ark of the covenant, the ark of the testimony. It's this, this symbol, and what, what is placed inside the ark? The Ten Commandments, right? Which is interesting, right? Because these are the stone tablets that have the law, and there's this, this ark that is made. And what, what is on top of the ark? There's a couple things on top of the ark. Aaron's staff. Right, that's inside. But what's on top of the, the ark, there are the cherubim, right? And then there's the mercy seat, okay? But this is the first part that, that God's telling them to set up. So all this is made, right? And then what are they doing with the ark? Does it just sit out in the open? No, it has a veil, right? So it has its own separate place. Do you, do you guys know what that place is called? It's the Holy of Holies, right? So he's talking about setting that up. So God's starting to, to distinguish these things. So if you actually look, my Bible has a, a picture of it, but what's really getting set up is if, if you start from the outside is this, it's not a, a tent with a roof, but it's, it's an enclosure basically, almost like a fence, right? But it's a great big enclosure that all the people come in. And, and where they come in, there's a big altar where they do burnt offerings, but inside that, there's another tent. And inside that tent, the first part that you come to is, is the holy place, and then behind the veil inside that tent is the holy of holies. Okay, so that's what God's talking about setting up here and he gives them the instructions for how he wants them to set those things up and so when they when they're following the law and they're doing the sacrifices and things um, who is allowed to do that just anybody can anybody go into the holy of holies or into the holy place and make sacrifices right so so god sets up these rules and he wants it set up that way and if 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 you remember back, we talked some about Exodus. I don't know if we read specifically. It's in chapter 24. But when, when the people are going to Mount Sinai, right? And so if, when they're going and God's telling them what they, what they can do, all the people go to the base of Mount Sinai, right? But does everybody get to go up to the very top and be in the presence of God? No. And he tells them when they go that all the people can come, but they can't go up the mountain. But Moses and, and Moses can take the elders and go partway up the mountain and they can worship God there. But it's only Moses who actually goes to the very top of Mount Sinai where the presence of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of the Lord, descends on the mountain in that cloud. And that's where God talks to Moses and where God, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and all those things. That's what this meeting tent is modeled after, is that three levels. Everybody can go inside the big enclosure and there's the big place where they do the burnt offerings and things. But it's only the, the priests, only the Levites, when it is their turn and their duty. And they, they'll, we'll talk about this probably in future lessons, how they set all that out. But they, it's always manned and they're always, you know, they're burning incense and they have all these rites and things that they do. But those priests go into the holy place. But how often does somebody go into the holy of holies? Once a year, there was one time a year when 
the, the head priest or the chief priest would actually go behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant is and would sacrifice a goat for the sin of the people one time a year. And that was it, right? So think about that. So it, when we started out, people, Adam and Eve, were always in the presence of God, right? But sin enters the world and we're going to this place now where God is slowly getting us as people to come into his presence, to allow that to be there, right? So God comes and rescues them and, and from Egyptian slavery, and he's taking them in the wilderness, and now he's setting up this, and he's giving them the rules to live by, and the law, and the atonement, and the sacrifice, and those things. And so once a year, the head priest goes into sacrifice at the Holy of Holies. It's only once a year, right? And so... As we go through this, you know, we'll see how things are different and how God will start to change those rules to where we are today and what we have to look forward to. Um, but it's just, you know, like I said, as I read this, it's interesting to me how when we study the Bible and, and, and we are blessed to have the full text of the Bible, we can see how what God had in the beginning, he models in the Old Testament and the law where it comes to a different level with New, New Testament and the church age where we are now and where it will be in the future. And so God is setting this up and he's setting it up this way so that the people, part of it is so they will understand that God is holy, right? And God tells us, you know, it's, God says, you know, be holy because I'm holy. So we are supposed to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? Set apart, free from sin, right? And God is completely free from sin and he is completely holy and that's what we are trying to work towards but because of who we are in our sin nature we can't achieve that by ourselves we can get better at that and our sin gets paid for by the work of Christ on the cross right and that's something to bring up when we talk about um, the holy of holies and the mercy seat right because um, when God, when they, when they have the full tabernacle set up, what signifies God's presence in that place of meeting? It's the cloud. The cloud descends, right? And so you have, it's and, it, and it's actually this is where God is. His presence is on the earth in the tabernacle. That's where God is. Um, and so God's just setting this up and these three levels and kind of this separation between the people and the priests. He's called to administer sacraments in the the sacrifices in the law to the just once a year you get to come and atone for the sins of the people with with the blood of a goat right and and a lot of this is is centering on god's forgiveness right because what 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 is required to pay for sin death blood right there's there's a blood requirement and at this time before christ comes Following the law, they sacrifice animals, right? And it was right for them to do that because where God has the people at this point is he's asking them to be obedient, to sacrifice these animals, to atone for sin. And that's one of those things, and to think about um, when I studied the lesson that I hadn't thought through before, is when that one time a year when the chief priest goes in and sacrifices that goat for the sins of the people and he puts the blood on the mercy seat the presence of God is there he's in the Shekinah glory of the God so the cloud is there above and and the priest would put the blood of the goat on the mercy seat but 
also what's in the Ark of the Covenant that the mercy seat is on. It's the Ten Commandments, right? So you think about the structure of that, is you have the Ten Commandments and the law, and you have God here, it's that blood, it's that blood sacrifice that makes all that work, right? So you have to have that. There's the law we can't follow, right? Do, as, as hard as we try, on our own, can we keep all of the law? No. And what happens, it, could, could you, if it were possible, could you save yourself by keeping the law 100%? If you could, if you could completely, 100%, never ever sin, you would have no debt to pay, right? Are any of us capable of living a sin-free life? No, right? So it's impossible. Christ was the only one who lived a sin-free life, and that was because he was, while he was fully man, he was fully God, right? And that gets into the virgin birth and those things. Yes, because in, in, when God views sin, and, and we're guilty of this as people many times, is, you know, you might cheat a little on your taxes or tell a little white lie, and we don't think that's that bad of a sin, but we would never murder anyone, right? That's really bad. In, in, in God's eyes, sin is sin. Even the very smallest, slightest transgression condemns you, just as much as if you were committing adultery and lying and all the, if you could break all the commandments or you can just break one little tiny one and and now you have broken the law right so we can't live that way so we need that you know there has to be that atonement there has to be that payment and that for us comes through the work of Christ on the cross right as believers in the church age yes i think they understood original sin because they, it, it's not like nobody remembered the story of Adam and Eve until Moses came, right? They, they're all descendants, and they all passed on what has happened, right? All of the people that are... Uh, so when, when we're here in Exodus, if you were to go to one of the Hebrews and, and you know, ask them you know, who their God is, they very well may answer, well, it's, it's, you know, their God is, you know, my God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know who Abraham is. They know who Isaac is. They know who Jacob is. They know the stories of, of Abraham and, and Hagar and how Sarah and Abraham tried to hurry things along and that didn't work out very well. And, you know, there's Esau and Jacob. And they know all those stories. They know about Adam and Eve. They understand as a people where they came from. So I think, you know, whether or not it's, it's, it's written down in here. You have to think that because they're Hebrews and they're God's chosen people and those stories have been handed down and they know what those stories are and they know who God is and why they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I think they understand the concept of original sin. I think they understand that. Right, that's true. And so I, I don't know that, there's, that you could go to a specific line in the Old Testament that says they, they believe in original sin, but I think if just seeing what they do and knowing who God is and knowing why they're there, right? Because God didn't hide any of that. Like I said, God didn't, um, he didn't take all that knowledge and hide it somewhere and bring it out later. It's, it's been there, right? Because God doesn't lie, right? God is right there. He puts everything out in front of you and says, this is how it is and this is what's going on. You know, it, he's not, he, he wants us to do the right thing. So he wants us to know and understand truth, right? And God is truth and he, tells us the truth 
And so, you know, when we think about worshiping God, it's not just about his holiness, but it's also about his forgiveness. And that's the the next thing we're going to talk about. I'm going to read, um, we're going to pick up again in Exodus 40. I'm going to read verses 12 to 15. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father and they may minister as priests to me. And their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Okay? And so part of God's order is God wants certain people to be responsible for doing the sacrifices, administering those things, carrying out the law for the other people. And he chooses, who does he choose? Do you think that's ironic? I do. Okay, what story, what did we talk about last week in the golden calf? Who is in charge while Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, getting all of the instruction and knowledge and learning from God about what they're supposed to do? Who is in charge? Aaron. And what did Aaron do? He let the people do what they wanted, which is not always a good idea. Sometimes people have good ideas, but... The people got, remember, the people got restless, and they're like, oh, we don't know about this Moses guy, and he might not be coming back, and he may have misspoken or made a wrong turn, and God might have done away with him, so we want you to make us a God so we can worship. You know, we know we're supposed to worship God, right? So they they know they're supposed to do some things. They're just not doing it in the right way at all. Aaron is in charge. Aaron's supposed to go, whoa, wait a minute. Didn't you guys hear? We just got the Ten Commandments. We're not supposed to do this. No, we're not going to do that. If you want to worship, yeah. Let's worship God, but this is our God, right? And he said, we worship in this way. So let's do it the right way. Instead, he's like, well, give me all of your gold earrings and everything. And they melted, and he he makes a graven image. He makes the calf. And we we kind of didn't get into it last week. But when Moses comes back, and he's really mad, and he asks Aaron what's going on, what explanation does Aaron give to Moses about how the the, the golden calf came to be? The story, the story Aaron tells Moses is, well, I took all this gold and we threw it in the fire and out came this calf. It was magic. It was meant to be. Complete and total lie, right? So, but God chooses Aaron, right? Now, there's a basic principle here of there's nobody who's sin-free, right? So God's going to have to pick a sinner. But look who he picks. The, the chief ringleading sinner, Right? But what does that tell us about God and his love for us and his his ability to forgive? Amazing. Infinite, right? He takes somebody who just totally messed up and totally did the wrong thing and it it was bad. You know, if you look at it, it it was not good at all. He he failed in a big way and he shouldn't have because Aaron was with Moses, right? He... You know, if, if you go back and you look, when God first called Moses, Moses is like, ah, I'm not, I'm not a good speaker, God. I, I don't have the right words. I'm not good in front of people. I get stage fright. I'm not good at this. Can I have a mouth? And God gives Moses Aaron as a mouthpiece to help him. So if you look at this, Aaron's been right there with Moses, basically his right-hand man. He's been there. So it's not like Aaron was some guy who was way back in the crowd who, you know, at the end of the day, they're like, oh, we're going to pick you. Your number came up. Aaron's been there. Aaron has 
as much as anybody has seen, Aaron has witnessed and seen this, right? But think about that for our lives when we think about forgiveness. Have, have, you know, I, I have messed up. I have sinned in big... You know, I think we probably, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have, right? But God will forgive you and he will call you to do things, right? And I, I always think of Paul in this example. Paul was committed to destroying Christians in the way. He was... A Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, he he was he grew up in the church, um, was a religious leader, studied, was a Pharisee. He did everything he thought he was supposed to do, right? And was killing Jews, and was there when Stephen was stoned, and all of that. But who does God call to minister to the Gentiles? Paul, right? Saul, and he changes his name to Paul. So God can take anybody and change them to do what they need him to do. So God is taking Aaron and he's telling Aaron and, and really he's telling us as believers, it's okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do some important things. And even if you fail, I will forgive you. I, you know, I still want you to work for me. I still want you to do these things. And so, you know, when we look at that, it's, it's just in my mind, it's, a, it's an awesome, encouraging thing that God picks Aaron and the Levites, right? So he picks this tribe, and they're the ones who are going to be the priests and, and to do these things. And, um, you know, he, he does that. And, and what does he do to get Aaron ready? It tells us in here. Does he just take Aaron and say, go for it? They clean him, right? They wash him. They put him in specially prepared garments. You know, they have the ephod. They do all these things, and there's a ceremony, Right? And part of that is um, we as people, it helps us understand, right? It helps us know, okay, I'm going to go do this, and this is how I prepare, right? And it, it prepares them to understand I'm going to go in and do this. A lot of the law, a lot of the Jewish law, a lot of the things they did were symbolic to help them understand if you want to go be in God's presence, if you want to pray to God, if you want to interact with God, you need to do your best to be holy, to be clean, right? And so that's starting to be modeled here where the people who, you know, that are going to be the priests and that's what their legacy is, they have to go through this. They have special clothing they wear. They go through special cleansing rituals. This is what they have to do. Um, and, and God meant this as a way for them to remember you're about to do something with the, the creator God, the great I am, the self-existent one. You should prepare yourself. You should do that, right? And that's something for us to remember, you know, when we pray, you know, to remember who God is, right? We should have an honest fear of God because of the power that he holds and who he is. And we shouldn't be afraid of him as, I don't want to go talk to God, but we should have that respect and that awe of him and honor him in this way that he's told them, right? And so he's asking them to do these things. And, and if you read through the Bible and you look at a lot of, when we start talking about salvation and those things, this whole theme of being cleansed and being washed and new clothes, that all comes through, right? And, and it's that symbolic thing that I think Scripture carries through, even from this part that applies to us as believers. When, when we are saved and we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we're taking off the old and we're putting on the new, right? And that's, that's in there. If we look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, um, the author of Hebrews has a good way of, of describing this. So it's Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. 
And hopefully as I read this, you'll get the references back to the tabernacle and the, you know, the, the tent of meeting and the holy place and the holy of holies. So Hebrew verse 19, 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right? So the author here is telling us, just like during Old Testament times, when the priests would cleanse themselves and go in to the holy place and do the sacrifices and burn the incense and do those things, we can do that now, but we as believers can do that because of the work of Christ. Christ did that. Christ, um, you know, tore the, you know, the, the, Christ's work allowed us to go in and do that, right? So if you think about Old Testament law, we don't have to wait for all of that. We can do that ourselves. So if you look at Matthew chapter 27, right, and, and we talk about the crucifixion of Christ, it's Matthew 27, 50 and 51. And so this is, Christ is crucified and he's on the cross and he's, and, you know, and he's, he's about, you know, he, he, he has died and you know he says you know my god my god why are you forsaking me and so if you pick up in verse 50 it says and jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split so when they actually get to the point in 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 hebrew history where they build the temple itself there is still a veil for the Holy of Holies in the actual stone big building temple, right? Which is modeled after this tabernacle that we talked about being built today. But when, when Christ dies and his spirit is given up, what happens to the veil? It's torn in two, right? From top to bottom. So why do you think it's important that it, it tells us it was torn in two from top to bottom? God did it. So if you read through about when, they, when Solomon makes the temple and when they make this veil, this is not some flimsy curtain. This is a big, heavy, sturdy piece of cloth. And it's big. It's huge. Something like it's, it's It's four or eight. I couldn't remember and I didn't look it up. It's very thick and it's made out of hand-woven wool. right? And it's from top to bottom so that people know and understand as we read this God did that, right? And so what's the significance of the veil being torn in the temple? What's the veil hiding? What's behind there you can't go see? The presence of God in the Ark and the Covenant, right? Well, when Christ dies and his blood has paid for our sin, right, that covers all of our sin. That's opening in a much more personal way our ability to come before God, right? So... All of this symbology that God's building way back in the Old Testament, he's preparing for Christ and Christ's work for us to understand that we don't have to have a priest go sacrifice a goat to pay for our sin, right? We now, through the work of Christ on the cross and being believers and being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we can pray and talk directly to God and we can lay our hearts out and we can confess our sin and we can repent 
And we can ask for help to do better next time and to do the things that we're supposed to. And so these Old Testament things, sometimes we read them and like, well, okay, this is all good and everything, but what does it really do for me? It's, it's all laid out so that we get this full understanding of what it was, right? And it's good now, right? What we have now with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and our access to God, that's really good, isn't it? Is it going to get better? Infinitely better, right? Those who have passed away now, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord, they are now in the presence of God. They're there already. We're not there. We know as believers we will get there. You know, if Christ returns before we physically die, it'll happen then. But if not, we're going to go to where it's even better, where we pray and we, and we talk to God, right? But there's still somewhat of a veil, isn't it? Because we don't get direct communication like Moses did. Right, right. We still have that flesh. We still, there's still some barriers there. It's not completely removed. But someday it will be. But at least right now, we have the honor and privilege of going to God in prayer and talking with Him. And we're indwelt, right, with the Holy Spirit. That's one of those things, um, you know, that, that we look at. And that's, that's the third thing that we're going to talk about today is, is, you know, part of worshiping God is, is being in His presence. And so I'm going to read, um, we're going to be back in Exodus 40. I'm going to pick up in verse 34. So Exodus 40, starting in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they, would, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. And so, as they're getting ready to go to the wilderness to travel to the promised land, God is letting them know by his presence whether he wants to stay where they are or whether they're going to move, right? And if the cloud is still there, if the presence of the holy God is still at the tabernacle, they're going to be where they are, and at night there's the fire, but when God is ready for them to move, he's going to take his presence and the cloud will move and they know to take the tabernacle down and then to move, right? But it's, it's that understanding of having God and being in his presence as we worship. And, you know, as, as believers and in, in this progression, right, we have God and the cloud and then, um, you know, you go through most of the Old Testament, but when, when we come to Christ... What's the first way that God, even in a better way, comes into our presence? The Holy Spirit. And before that, though, God himself came, right, as Christ. So there's the virgin birth, right? And what's one of the names of God? That when they call it when Christ, what's one of the names for Christ? Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? And so literally, as God is ready for his plan to move forward... He sends his son, Jesus, who's born of the Virgin Mary, right? And he's called Emmanuel, which is God. So he actually sends his son to be in the presence of the apostles then, right? To call those 12 apostles to start the church age for Christ to live a sin-free life, right? So he experiences what we experience, but he does not commit any sin and, and follows God's plan and is crucified on the cross, 
And then when he is gone, as he's, and he's teaching the apostles some of this, and one of those, if, you, if you'll turn to John chapter 16, verse 7, is Jesus himself tells us of the better thing that's coming. So John 16... Starting in verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will... And he, and he when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And... and Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged, right? So this is talking about the Holy Spirit, right? So when Christ leaves, when, that, when the presence of the Son of God, when God's presence in his Son leaves us, he sends the Holy Spirit, right? And that's what we have now. And that Holy Spirit, if you, if you look in the first chapter of Ephesians, it, it tells us in there, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians tells us that the Holy Spirit is, is the mark on us that shows us that we are His and that can't be taken away. And it's that promise of the future of us being directly in the presence of God. Right? And, and it's just that amazing thing where when you think about we do have the Holy Spirit with us, right? We do have God's presence. And as believers, we carry that with us all the time. And, and it's going to get better as, as we move forward, Right? And, and there are other, if we look in, we look in Matthew, um, if you look at verse 18, Matthew 18, verse 20. I'm not turning my pages very fast today. You know, and, and this, is, this is Jesus speaking. He says, for where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst, right? So God's always with us. And at the end of Matthew in chapter 28, how long does God say he'll be with us? Till the end of the age, right? Till the end of the age. So we know God's always with us. And we just see this progression of, we have the law, we have God's, you know, the Shekinah glory of God, that presence of God in the tabernacle. And it's there in the temple when they build it, right? And then it gets better. I mean, there, there are things where the, and we're going to study about this and read as we go through the gospel project where, the people continue to be, you know, God is there, but the people continue to be obstinate and stiff-necked, and they do things, and so they have to learn the hard way, and, and we go all the way through things, and they do some good things, right? But they do some bad things, but it ends up to the point where the people are exiled, and, and they finally do get to come back, but then they're exiled permanently, and then there's that 400 years where there's really no word from God, Right? And that's where we pick up with the New Testament where Christ is born. And so we start again on this where we go, right? And it's going to kind of be the same way if you think about it because we're in the church age. And how does the church age end? The rapture and um, the tribulation and all that stuff, right? That's going to be bad just like the exile and, and, and the destruction of the Jewish people in the temple was bad, right? It, it all goes in these cycles and phases, right? And, you know, we say, oh, well, those, those Israelites, they were terrible. Look, God was there, and he was telling them what to do, and they did all the wrong things. Well, 
look around our society, right? How, how good are we doing according to God's rule book? Even, yeah, we have the Word and we have the Holy Spirit, right? We have, we have tremendous advantage if you think about it. Because, one, we have all this history we can look at. And, and, and you know, they say I had an instructor that tried to talk me into being a history major because he says, you know, we need to study our history so we don't repeat it. You know, those who don't will repeat it. Well, it's all there. We all study it, but we still, despite our best efforts, right, and, and God's love for us and we, we have that knowledge, we still, as people and children of Adam, we still sin. But we know we don't have to. It's just making those choices. It's just hard, right? Because there's always, there's always that battle, right? We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We know who God is and we love God and, and we have his love, but we have the sin nature and there's always that battle. And as long as we are in our fleshly bodies on this earth, that battle rages. And some days we do awesome and we win and we win well, but there are days when we don't do very well and we make bad decisions and we behave in poor ways and we say things that we should not say, right? But we just have to keep going back, right? And we still have that picture of Aaron who really did very poorly, but God still chooses him to be the leader. You know, he's, the, he's a Levite and he's a leader of the priests and their job is to do this very important thing you know, until God has that stop. And it may. And I, I looked at some of that because I know you'd asked about that last week. But that was right because Moses is there. And just like when, when we're doing things we're not supposed to and, and a brother or sister in Christ comes up to us and says, Hey, you're doing this that God calls us not to do. You should stop that. You know, and if it's a bunch of us, some people don't. But some people are so caught up in it, they don't stop. And in this particular part of the story... The Levites are the only ones who heed Moses' call and they come to the city gate to be with them. Even though the other Aaron had been in charge of the Right, and then made the mistakes. And we and we can't pin it all on Aaron, right? It wasn't that Aaron came up with this. It's just when when he had the chance to make the good decision to stop the bad behavior, he didn't do it. Right? He did. He did not uh, confess. Right. So, yes. And, you know, we all, we all have that problem. We all don't want to be punished. We don't like that. We don't want to admit we made a bad choice, so we make another bad choice. Right? I mean, this is not anything new. This is just how life goes on on this earth because of who we are and where we're at. But we do know that, you know, God has given us the Holy Spirit, and we do have you know, his presence now in an even greater way. And we have the knowledge and understanding that sometime in the future, and we don't know how long that will be for each of us individually, but we do know because it, God tells us we'll be in his presence forever. And, and there, there is no sin and there's no heartache and there's, there's none of the stuff we deal with on this earth because we're in the presence of, of the living God. And we can actually be in that presence, right? We can actually be there with him where Moses was the only one that God would really allow to be in his presence right and then the the chief priest one time a year so think about that I mean we every day we can get up in the morning and we can get on our knees and we can pray to God and and know he's there listening to us and he's present with us in the Holy Spirit so any other questions before we 
It is. And I think that's the key thing is that we're, we're, we no longer have to be slaves to sin, right? Just like God rescued the Egyptian or God rescued the Hebrews from slavery to the Egyptians, he rescues us, right? But the Egyptians had to get up and go, right? So we also have to take that action. We have to turn away from sin and, and work on doing the right things. But that's, that's a good point, Chris. We'll go ahead and close in prayer.